What a show this Saturday morning. Gesundheit with Jacobus welcomes Sherry Mitchell, a thoughtful, concerned, and inspiring Native American attorney and activist. Her new book is called Sacred Instructions, Indigenous Wisdom for Living Spirit-Based Change. Please join us and hear Sherry Mitchell, whose message is clearly for all of us. It's Gesundheit with Jacobus. Gesundheit with Jacobus, Health Talk Radio, integrating allopathic and all natural medicine one show at a time. Here is your host, Jacobus Hollowine. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Welcome to Gesundheit with Jacobus. And Chadwick was right. I am Jacobus Hollowine, your host. It is wonderful to be with you, even though it is quite a blustery day today. When you go outside, hold on to your toupee. And let me tell you a little bit about Sherry. Sherry Mitchell was born and raised on the Penobscot Indian Reservation. She speaks and teaches around the world on issues of indigenous rights, environmental justice, and spiritual change. Sherry received a Juris Doctorate and a Certificate in Indigenous Peoples Law and Policy from the University of Arizona James E. Rogers College of Law. She is an alumna of the American Indian Ambassador Program and the Udall Native American Congressional Internship Program. Sherry is the founding director of the Land Peace Foundation, an organization dedicated to the global protection of indigenous land and water rights and the preservation of the indigenous way of life. She has been actively involved with indigenous rights and environmental justice work for more than 25 years. In 2010, she received the Mahoney Dunn International Human Rights and Humanitarian Award for research into human rights violations against indigenous people. In 2015, she received the Spirit of Maine Award for commitment and excellence in the field of international human rights. In 2016, Sherry's portrait was added to the esteemed portrait series Americans Who Tell the Truth by artist Robert Shetterly. And she is the recipient of the 2017 Hands of Hope Award from the Peace and Justice Center. In addition to helping her own people, Sherry has been a longtime advisor to the American Indian Institute's traditional circle of Indian elders and youth, and she was a program coordinator for the Healing the Future program. She also served as an advisor to the Indigenous Elders and Medicine People's Council of North and South America for the past 20 years. Sherry is the visionary behind Healing the Wounds of Turtle Island, a global healing ceremony that has brought people together from all corners of the world. The ceremony is designed to heal our relationship with one another as human beings and then to heal the relationship between human beings and the rest of creation. It has been attended by people from every continent except Antarctica, who have come together to pray with one heart and one mind for the healing of all life on Mother Earth. Sherry is also the co-host of the syndicated radio program Love and Revolution Radio, which focuses on real-life stories 
of hard-based activism and revolutionary spiritual change. Now, to get in touch with her, to find more out about Sherry Mitchell, go to her website called sacredinstructions.life, sacredinstructions.life. And why is that? Well, she wrote an amazing book. I've been really, really enjoying reading it. It's called Sacred Instructions, Indigenous Wisdom for Living Spirit-Based Change. Sherry, wonderful to have you on the program. Thanks for spending your morning with us. Thank you, Jacobus. It's wonderful to be with you. Yeah, you were in Bozeman not too long ago. You gave a presentation at the Pilgrim Congregational Church. I think it was about a month ago. Is that possible? Has it been longer than that? I think it has been about a month. Yeah. Now, I have to tell you that uh, reading your book, as much as I could read, it's been a very busy week for me. I connect with everything that you say, your your insights and the way you explain life and where life comes from is 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 very profound, uh, very insightful. I really, really enjoyed this. Would you like to tell people a little bit about your journey, where you started, uh, your your early life, the people, some of the people who have influenced you, and and and, and go from there? Sure, I'd love to. My early life was largely framed by my relationship with my grandparents. I had a very close relationship with my grandparents and grew up for a majority of my young life in their home. And the experiences that they've had growing up in a small tribal community and an area where the population is largely white was one that really shaped who they were in relation to acknowledgement of their tribal roots and in relationship to their interaction with the world outside of their community, which was not always very accepting. So one of the things that that they taught me was to be kind to all people, Mm -hmm. regardless of how I was treated, regardless of what I came up against, that I should not allow others to shape who I am in a way that diminishes my compassion and my heart. And so I think that was a really profound influence on me considering all that they had experienced themselves growing up in communities where oftentimes they were punished for being who they were. That the survival of their compassion and their heart-based wisdom was really inspirational to me. Uh, Their kindness, their charity to others, um, all of those things, and and really instilling within me this deep love for the place where I grew up, a uh, real deep understanding of my connectivity to the land, what we call in Dilnabamuk, which is our relationship to all life. Yes. Those things really shaped who I was, and I also had the incredible opportunity to learned from a number of other elders in my territory, in Wabanaki territory. Uh And then when I got to be a little bit older, I started doing youth programs in in my community and was invited to participate in the American Indian Institute's Elder and Youth Circle. And that brought me in contact with indigenous elders from all over the Americas. And then that really kind of set the stage for my, my path opening up to a much broader understanding of the commonalities within the pathways between indigenous communities. Yes. It, yeah. it seems that you have not just 
received a tremendous amount of information and, and guidance from the people directly with you. But what I really like in your book is how mm -hmm. you say how the present is connected with the past and the past is connected with the further past and the past mm -hmm. is again connected with the universe. And, mm -hmm. and you have such an eloquent way of saying that. It's just uh, when I was reading it, I, I hope I can find the page, but maybe you can tell us this to me is totally what life is about, that we understand our place in the world, that we understand our relationship with others, that we understand relationships with our parents, like you mentioned with your daughter, that she was, that, that she, uh, th that she was going to come into this life with her brother and that the brother had picked <laughs> you as the mom and she said it was not my choice, uh, it was <laughs> yeah. his choice. You know, to me, that was uh, so special when you explained that and how you wrote it. It was funny, but at the same yeah. time, it shows the depth of how we are connected and why we are connected. That 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 right. that your daughter's choice was to be born with her brother, but at mm -hmm. this and and uh, but there is also something where you say that she wanted to be born with her previous mother or something. What was it again? Uh, no, she had. She, I don't know if I explain this in the book, but when she was uh, quite small, both of them actually, when they were quite small, had really vivid recollection of their past lives. Yes. And used to talk about them freely. And I, you know, I didn't do anything to indicate that that was an unusual conversation to them because I wanted right. them to just continue to hold yes. on to yeah. that awareness. And so she explained to me number of different occasions when we have been together, the three of us in the past. Yes. And that she had promised her brother the last time they were together that they would always travel together. Yes. And so he came in and she followed. And so the relationship that she explained to me that we've had in the past has not been a parental relationship. It was more, we had a sibling relationship at one point in time. I and see. We're colleagues at one point in time, and we're all teaching together. And so the the trajectory that she explained to me was really a continuation of the work that we've begun in the past, that we had come back together to continue the learning that was initiated during those time periods that had not been completed. And so it really felt like this unfolding of this larger experience between us mm -hmm. and also gave me an incredible amount of respect for who they are as spiritual beings, you know, right. beyond the physical. In a, small, in a small body, right? Yeah. And, you know, also it, it really connects to our understanding of, of how we view the creation from my own tribal spiritual perspective. Mm -hmm. So we have in our uh, traditions stories that tell us where we come from and how we relate to the world. There's a number of different creation stories that we have. And there are two of them that I talk about in the book. And one of the stories that is connected to the larger work that I'm doing in the world right now yes. is a story about Kachiniwis. And Kachiniwis is the great seed of life. Yes, I And was so in that, that yes. story, all life is contained within this seed which we call Kachiniwis. And you compare that with the Akashic Records. Was that the one where you uh, talk about both? That was well, not the word. It's because a, it's I'm a thinking... winding story that um, we'll get to the 
thing connected to the Akashic Records or the collective consciousness is the, is the teachings around the three fires. Yes. Which I think we will probably get to today. Um, but the story about Kachiniwis is really similar in many ways to the Big Bang Theory. Mm-hmm. So we're all being cultivated in this seed of life. And when that seed opens up and spreads living matter uh, across the universe, that gives birth to all life. And so what we are taught within those teachings is that because of our initial connection within that seed of life, the connections between us spiritually and energetically are never severed that we always remain a part of that. And that really connects to what science is now calling quantum entanglement, Uh that any physical matter that is once connected can never be disconnected energetically. And so there have been a number of experiments that have have proven that theory. Um, The twin photon experiment that came out of Geneva in the early 90s um, was one such experiment. And all of these things align with our traditional spiritual teachings as uh, Wabanaki people. Yes. And so I, I really got intrigued about that. And so when we think about the fact that we were all once part of this large mass of matter that was once connected physically, and we understand the larger spiritual and now scientific principles that we can never be disconnected spiritually or energetically, we realize that we have real tangible connections to all life going back to the beginning. And that there is, you know, this connectivity, interrelatedness that we have understood in many ways within this physical spectrum and even abstractly through spiritual mechanisms. Right. But to understand the the real full encompassing of the depth of our connectivity, we now have some pretty clear guidance on how that looks. And so when we think about that entanglement, one of the best examples that I, I've found for myself is to think about uh, phantom limb. Okay. When somebody has yes, a leg yes, amputated yes. Uh-huh. from from the knee down, say, yes. um, they're still getting sensations in their foot. And Absolutely. that's because the matter that was once connected there physically is still connected spiritually and energetically. Correct. So that really kind of matches up with those teachings and matches up with these theories of quantum entanglement. Yes. And so when we think about it in that way, uh, we recognize the depth of that connection. We also start to garner a bit of understanding about why so many people in the world today are are deeply traumatized, even those who I are see. not yes. uh, immediately experiencing trauma, because we're carrying all of the experiences from the beginning of life with us in our bodies. You know, we have always talked about having ancestral wisdom in our blood. And now that has been proven by science through the recognition that genetic memory is passed from one generation to the next. Oh, wow. And so, you know, when we think about the passing of genetic memory or yes. ancestral wisdom, as, as we've talked about it, we start to recognize that there is this unfolding, deeply interconnected woven thread of life that moves through all of us that carries all of the experiences of our entire time right into the bodies of of the human beings who are part of this living creation and so that you know that depth of weaving is is pretty profound and it's it's powerful and 
it's uh, awe-inspiring and overwhelming, but in some odd ways, it's also very comforting because yes. it allows us to understand some of the unnamed emotions that we're experiencing with mm-hmm. anxiety and panic and depression. Totally. Um, totally. When there's nothing in our immediate world to explain that, we can yes. start to understand that we're we have a certain degree of sensitivity that's allowing us to pick up yes. the reverberations of the collective history of trauma that we've all shared. What an amazing explanation. Thank you so much. Uh, good morning, caller. Thanks for joining the program. What is your name? How can we help you, please? Good morning, Jacobus. This is Lori. How are you? Hey, Lori. I'm well. Thank you. Good morning to you. Good. So this is just so timely. It's just amazing how life is just a serendipitous trip. Um, I recently was exposed to a concept called epigenetics. Yes. And um, there's a, a community-based church that has um, a couple people involved in it who have written quite a number of uh, books on this, and I just think it's fascinating that the DNA just holds on to that stress, and it can either be released or not released, and I guess I just wanted to further that conversation um, on that aura for people who are wondering why it seems some generations um, just seem to have all this pain body, you know, it just seems like, Mm -hmm. oh, something bad's going to happen, it's going to be to me, and it's almost like that outward thinking of receiving it and being willing to expect it almost brings it about, and I wondered if she would comment on that. Thank you. Yes. Well, I think this is a really important um, question because trauma is transferred from one generation to the next in in some really complex ways. And so the pain that can't be contained by the first generation is pushed out of the conscious mind and transferred to the next generation through these emotional sensitivities, fears, intense sadness, anxiety disorders. And then that second generation recipient of that trauma Um, is often unable to name its source, which causes more inexplicable torment and despair. And so when we have the pain of generational trauma rising up in second or third generation recipients, the responses that they often feel, the outlook that they have on life is often very disproportionate to the experience that they're actually having in the moment. And so understanding that populations of people who have lived through really traumatic experiences have the expectation of repetition of those experiences. It's that fight, flight, or freeze phenomenon that that happens within our bodies. And when the expectation of immediate harm is too powerful, uh, too overwhelming for an individual to stay with the experience of that in the moment, it gets suppressed and it actually lodges itself within the tissues of the body. Right. And so when that happens, that trauma that's not resolved, uh, one of the things that we try to do, which is is so unhelpful, that we think is is helpful, is to get people to calm down mm-hmm. when they have a traumatic experience. I see. And so if we think about that calming, you know, stop shaking, don't cry, you know, let me calm you down. That experience is actually counterproductive to the experience of releasing trauma from our bodies. Right. That the the tears, the shaking, if you look at an animal who's out in the natural world, 
um, after they've experienced some kind of trauma, they'll shake their whole body. Yes. Yes. And so that shaking process is actually removing the charge of that trauma from the body. Yes. And so when people don't have the experience of releasing that trauma from the body, it gets suppressed and absorbed into the tissue and the genetic matter within the body, which then gets transferred on to the next generation without any ex explanation, wow. oftentimes because they don't want to talk about what they've experienced because it wasn't it wasn't uh, possible for them to deal with the immensity of it at the time. Yes. So then reliving that by sharing the stories and talking about that gets left out of the equation. So then the second generation and sometimes even third generation, because we'll if the second generation yeah. recipient doesn't have an explanation for it and an opportunity for it to heal. Sherry, Sher we have to go. There's a short break coming up. Okay. Please stay tuned, folks. We'll, we'll be right back. Stay put, please. You know, Sherry, right at the end of the uh, last uh, part section, you started talking about, the, after the call from Lori, explaining the epigenetics part, the, the part where we see that in generations, um, things are carried on from one generation to the next. If trauma mm -hmm. is not resolved in the first generation, you said it will be passed on to the next generation and so on. And then mm -hmm. you, you mentioned also that Currently, when people have an expression of emotion, expression of pain that comes out, it is not a good idea to stop that flow because it is something that needs to be dealt with, needs to come out. I, I, I totally hear what you're saying, but it can be very mm -hmm. confusing for people ha seeing this happen. Yeah, I think that that one of the things that we have been conditioned to believe is that expressions of pain are unhealthy in some ways and the opposite is actually true and so we've been conditioned to avoid our pain at all costs yeah so we suppress it we dismiss it we actually shift blame for it we find another outlet to express it we medicate it there are all of these different ways that we have found to avoid the pain of what we're experiencing because you know that's that's what we've been trained to do and so when we start thinking about epigenetics we're you know I was talking a little bit about traumatic imprints and intergenerational trauma but there's also imprints that are created through the experiencing of illness and so when we have these family histories where we feel like we're genetically predisposed to illness, what that is is that is an imprint from the experience of that illness within the body of the original experiencer of that illness right. um, being imprinted into our genetic code and passed down. So that's really an emotional, psychological imprint that we can overcome. And that's the beauty of epigenetics. It tells us that our genetics are not the full story and they are not the right. final story, right. that we have the capacity to be able to change the story in relation to what we believe are our genetic predispositions. Right. And so becoming aware of the transmission of traumatic memory within our genetic code actually helps us to realize that there we have the capacity within our current generation to deal with to work with to eliminate and to dissolve right those imprints that we're carrying not only for ourselves um, you know because time is not linear 
you know, it's this circular, ever flowing, almost simultaneously experiencing thing. So when we have an awakening of a genetic memory within our body that comes from, you know, two or three generations back, we're simultaneously experiencing the pain that our ancestor experienced in the modern day. Okay. And so when we have you this mean in experience, the modern day, of, you mean the modern day that was then the modern day, or you mean in today's day we are experiencing what our uh, forefathers and uh, experienced? You mean today? Yeah. Where? Well, it it goes both ways. Yes. So when when I had uh, this trauma that I was carrying in my body, my I explain in the book that my grandmother didn't speak English. She only spoke her traditional language. And she was taken and forced to go into this um, school that was run by Catholic nuns. And every time she tried to communicate, because the only way she knew how to communicate was in her own language, she was beaten. Um, The children were beaten if they didn't speak in English. And she didn't know how to speak in English. So imagine the trauma of a small child being forced away from their family, put into this environment where they didn't understand the language, they didn't speak the language, and every time they tried to communicate, they were punished. Mm -hmm. And so that was the experience that my grandmother had. And then there were experiences that my mother had as a result of being raised by, um, you know, two individuals. My grandfather had his own experiences who had experienced this kind of severe trauma, how it impacted their ability to be able to emotionally relate to their children. Mm. And then she had her own experiences with um, some pretty severe racism and, um, you know, uh, violent behaviors towards indigenous women from those in the communities surrounding the community that she grew up in that then were passed on to me. And so the work that I did when I, when I did the work to heal those traumas that I was carrying, even though I couldn't effectively name them at the time, um, the understanding of those things didn't come until after, because after I did that healing, the stories from my mother and grandmother started to come out where they yes. had never talked about them before. Yes, I have had And that's experience. because the yeah. healing that I did actually traveled back through that line and created opportunities for healing and shifting within them because it's the same traumatic charge that I'm carrying that's within their body. And so there's a vibrational attunement with that in all of us. And so I saw the effects of that in my mother and grandmother. And I also saw the effects of that in my daughter as she began to grow. And so it was this multi-generational healing that took Mm -hmm. place as a result of me going in and seeking that trauma within my own being and then doing the work to heal it. Wow, that is so powerful. Thank you for explaining that. What I would like to do, and I don't know if this is part of this, this story, your trip when you were younger, you went to Guatemala and you picked up Mm -hmm. a parasite and you were very sick, and it took years, I think over two years for you to actually find healing, but you realized at that point also that the the answer was not on the outside, but you said the answer was really within yourself, and so you started to embrace the symptoms that you had experienced, and I think that the peace that you found in that process came out when you met this, uh, uh, this healer, who, who yeah. held your hands and said, um, I feel your pain, there is a parasite in you that corresponds with this 
this place in Guatemala and I can feel the energy and this person gave you some herbs for you to heal. Is that you feel connected with the story that you're just telling us? Well, I think it is connected. I mean, all of this really connects in um, some pretty profound ways. That experience that I had when I was in Guatemala and I got that parasite and it was impacting all areas of my life. I mean, my energy tanks were empty pretty much every day. Yeah. I was yeah. having a number of physical symptoms. I actually had been to countless doctors and spent thousands and thousands of dollars trying to figure out what was wrong with me. Nobody could identify it. And um, at one point, I simply started to um, look around me and see impacts in my life from the illness that were really quite beautiful. Yes. And so prior to having that, I was working really hard. I was very, very focused on the things that I thought I needed to accomplish externally in my life. I was a young mother and I was trying to create this life that I thought was really important for my children. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes it took me away from them. And so as a result of this illness, I had to slow down. Yes, yes. I had to shift my focus to the things that really were most important to me in a core level. Mm -hmm. I started really investing the limited amount of energy that I had in being present for my children. Yes. And so during that process, I realized that this illness was really an incredible gift to me because it actually showed me the true sweetness of life. Mm. It showed me that my presence with my children was far more important than any external materialistic life that I thought I could build for them, that being a fundamental part of their, their daily lives yes. and helping to influence who they became as human beings was more important than anything that I could give them. Wow. And so it created this awareness within me for the real inner beauty that was present within my own life and encouraged me to cultivate that more. And so what I learned through that process is that when I invested in those things that were really deeply connected to my heart, that my own sense of wellness improved. So even though some of the physical symptoms hadn't improved at that point in time, my experience of life wasn't mired in dismay over the physicality that my focus was able to be shifted yes. and so once i shifted that focus and i came into alignment with the vibration of that healing and i found all of the beauty that was present in that process yes. i actually drew to myself what was required for the healing of the physical illness i see and so when i came into alignment with the light that was present within that process. When I shifted my own awareness and my own vibration to one of love and appreciation for what I was being taught, yes. I drew to myself uh, an experience of healing. And so it was almost lined up, it felt almost simultaneous, but it was, it was an unfolding process. But I noticed that as soon as I changed my attitude about it from one of despair, and frustration and real fear-based response to it and 
sunk into the process and said, what is this teaching me? You know, instead of asking, why is this happening to me? Yes. uh, You know, started asking, why is this happening for me? I see. And then when I had that, that shift in perspective, I started to realize, okay, this is telling me that I need to really shift the focus of my life and be operating more from my heart-based wisdom than from these ideas of externality about what society deems are the important steps to take in order to be successful. And it really, you know, shifted the entire trajectory of my life. I was in my late 20s at the time. And as a result, the last 20 years of my life since that time have really become profoundly different and have taken me on a path that has really been aligned with that heart-based vision and heart-based wisdom and being connected to the vibrational frequency of life. Right. I had a experience that changed my life about 16 years ago and where I all of a sudden had insights about why I was acting a certain way or behaving a certain way and that indeed I had to forgive individuals uh, that had been in my life who I thought had it out for me. And then realizing that they didn't, it was not on their agenda. It was just how I interpreted their behavior or their words. Mm-hmm. And I, I, and when I had that, it was such a profound experience. I totally, totally from the bottom of my heart forgave these people. And it was the first time that I re- can really recollect what, what forgiveness is all about. And I realized yeah. that you have to forgive yourself. And I did. Mm-hmm. But also I was able to forgive these people which included my father and uh, he was a wonderful man it's just that he died when i was 17 and when you're 17 you don't know everything and Mm -hmm. uh, but that memory is stuck at the time it's stuck at that point in your life and that's all you remember from your dad because you never saw another development and so i finally realized that indeed as a soul I had to let him go. I had to let it. I had to forgive him. And and what happened was because it was unfinished business with my dad, everybody who came in an authority position after that pretty much took on that father role. And so I had issues with people from that moment on. And I had to let that go. And about 16 years ago, for me, that was a profound experience. So. Yeah, I had a, another experience around that actually followed that time that was very similar to what you're talking about. And so when we have those experiences, like when we were a child and we experience some kind of powerful yes. emotional response to something that's happening in our lives, the imprint that's created by that is viewed through the emotional maturity level of the child. And so, like you said, when you're 17, you don't always know everything. And so when you have the imprint of those experiences with your father enter into your body, they're entering into the body with the emotional vibrational frequency of the maturity level of that teenage boy. Totally, totally. And so then we can't 
help but when they're released the you know the chemistry the vibration of that when it's released through our body when we're triggered by something that's vibrating at the same frequency because that's how our genetic memory gets triggered is we come into contact with something that's vibrating at the same frequency right. as what we had experienced previously and yes. it enlivens and awakens yeah. that memory within us and the emotional response and all of the chemicals that are associated with that are released yes. into our bodies at that time and that's what we experience mm. and so the experience that i had with my mom because uh, there was you know a lot of difficult circumstances surrounding my birth there were a lot of difficult circumstances surrounding my early life yes and i carried the deep imprint of that and a real lack of understanding of how those things could have possibly happened how mm. could somebody possibly have felt that way mm. about their own child and I was in ceremony. I was actually in Montana at the time. Oh. And I was in ceremony and my grandmother had just passed away. Oh. You know, probably three or four months before that. And I was sitting there and I had this experience of just being lifted out of the back of my body and kind of standing behind myself. And the feeling of it was you know, was different from any other meditative or ceremonial experience that I had in that I was I was becoming an observer, but in some ways was still kind of connected bodily to the experience around me. And I just happened to look down at my hands because I the sense of detachment felt odd to me. Yes. And when I looked at my hands, I noticed that they were not my hands, but they were the hands of my mother. Wow. And then in that instant, I was whisked through every experience like all of these stopping points from when she was a small child one of 14 yes, um, yes. to all of these different points in her life seeing what she lacked in her own upbringing in regard to emotional support and emotional development seeing what she had wanted so badly for herself how she longed to feel important and special to someone because she was just one of many yes how she had dreams for her own life that were never fulfilled because ah. of her pursuit of that love that she felt that she was missing in ways that didn't meet her needs uh -huh. and had a very real and tangible experience as though i was within her body feeling what she was feeling and it went all the way from when she was a small child until the present moment that I was experiencing it. And I ended up crying for like 36 hours. So it wasn't as though I was emotionally absorbed in that release, but the tears just flooded for like a day and a half. And so as a result of that experience, there was a major shift in the relationship between me and my mother that never had to be discussed. It just was on a deep spiritual and energetic level that completely changed our relationship with one another. Wow. Wow. That is indeed very powerful. And that is, that is, truly, uh, that is true healing. And I think when you're talking about generational uh, things, that is indeed what happens here, that, mm -hmm. we, uh, that we start healing trauma from previous generations. Yeah, and I don't, I never felt like it was an experience of forgiveness. What I felt like was that I was given the opportunity to gain compassionate awareness. 
of their humanity because we oftentimes think that our parents are supposed to be elevated beings who are here to guide us and who are supposed to behave in certain ways and we completely lose sight of their humanity we completely lose sight of the fact that they are just doing the very best that they can given what they were given how they experienced the world the things that shaped them we forget that they have their own hopes and dreams. We forget that they have their own disappointments and hurts and wounds. Yes. And so I feel like that experience of being able to actually go in and, and have this feeling, this deep knowing of how she was actually feeling through all of these different stages of her life gave me compassionate awareness so that I could look at her with real empathy right. and then finally see her as a human being and not as my mother. Wow. You know, because there's a big difference there, you know? Yes, absolutely. And I, I know we're coming close to a break here, but I, I realized because of uh, what what you were writing, I realized indeed that this, this generational memory and imprint with us is something that we carry with us until it is resolved. And uh, I, I always thought that my dad, who lost his father when he was only 11, uh, simply didn't have a father role anymore. And when he had a son, he just didn't know how to raise, uh, not how to raise, but how to communicate with me from father to son. And he had been through the Second World War, so it was a traumatic event as well. And I feel, therefore, that uh, that was at that point the way I thought about it until I was reading your book and really started realizing this was carrying on from generation to generation. So anyway, we're going to take a short break with Sherry Mitchell. Folks, stay tuned. We will be right back. This is deep stuff that, that, that touches me, and I hope that as you are listening, you have a similar experience whereby you feel, wow, I, I never looked at it this way, and I need to revisit some of the traumas that I have in my life and I've had in my life and maybe certain illnesses that you have been fighting that you get a better explanation why our body is such an enormous vessel and and fantastic vessel that is holding on in this life to records that have been built up for generations from people who walk this planet before us. We're all connected. Sherry is talking about it in our book, Sacred Instructions, Indigenous Wisdom for Living Spirit-Based Change. So yes, we are talking about the, the generational differences between the parents and grandparents and, and, and people who've walked here before us. But as the show progresses, we also see that as people, we are all connected and we are connected not just with people, but we're connected with nature. We're connected with this planet uh, we there is a there is a time and a place for everything, and our timing today is very special because we are here. We're here, and we have choices. We have opportunities, and we have chances to learn through, for example, what Sherry is doing here today, helping us understand certain struggles and certain challenges and certain battles that we're fighting in our own, that once we can heal those, we will expand that from our heart and start healing the planet around us. And it, it, it may sound a little woo-woo for some of you, but I tell you what, we are the center of our own universe and we are expanding our energy from our heart, from our soul, to outward 
And uh, But the only way to really send this outward is when we are healing the core inside. And so understanding more about us, our place in the world, our place today in 2018, why we are here, why we have all these experiences, will give us a better insight in in our responsibilities and also understand more about who we are as people and, and as individuals. When many natives, you know, and I can only go by what I've seen on TV, so either in documentaries or in, in movies, it always intrigued me when people would go in the circles and talk, or uh, the, it, many times it was the elders, and they would talk to kind of solve problems, let's call it this way, or they would just talk. And the the oral connect, connection with people, giving each other time, the, the talking stick, so to say, let somebody speak till they're finished, and then mm-hmm. the next person talks. There is a lot to say about this oral transfer and explaining history and sharing thoughts and feelings and emotions that come up and listen to each other, learn from each other, and then become better because of it. Can you explain us a little bit more about the the connection, the the indigenous oral tradition history? Yeah, I can can explain a bit of it. I mean, it's a very layered and complex series of teachings connected to oral traditions. Yes. So there are a lot of people who think that indigenous people maintained oral traditions because they lack the ability to write, which is factually Ah. untrue. There's examples of um, some form of written communication from nearly every population on the planet back into early history. And so our ancestors had this real deep understanding of how knowledge is passed from one generation to the next. And so the teachings connected to understanding the importance of our oral traditions are really connected to this deeper set of teachings. So the teachings surrounding our oral traditions demonstrate this complex understanding of things that science is now just beginning to understand. I see. Our our elders remind us that our oral traditions are vital, not only because the stories bring a sense of grounding and continuity to our lives, but because our ancestral memory is triggered when these stories are spoken. So the vibrations that are transmitted through the telling of those stories awakens the ancestral knowledge that is carried within our genetic memory. Yes. And so, you know, we've always had teachings that genetic memory was passed from one generation to the next and that this genetic memory was connected to the telling of our stories. Um, So if you've ever had an experience where... Uh, somebody that you grew up with starts telling a story from your childhood and then you say, oh my gosh, I remember that. And then you start remembering all of these other things that were associated with it. Right. That's the way memory is stored. And when it's triggered and re-enlivened, reawakened, you have access to all of these other things that happened simultaneously to that living memory that you have stored within the expanse of your mind. And so it's the same with ancestral knowledge that when we have these historical or ancestral memories that we carry within us, that our stories, because they're in alignment with a similar vibration. So we talked about trauma in the first hour and how um, our traumatic memories 
are enlivened when something of similar vibrational frequency connects with that. It's like a tuning fork. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so when that connects with that, it triggers the trauma that we carry. Okay. So it's the flip side of that with our oral traditions in that the stories, specific chants, there's a specific vibrational frequency and emotional resonance that's connected to the telling or the singing that actually triggers the ancestral wisdom that we carry. And so, you know, it's like all things that the greater the darkness, the more powerful the light, you know, mm-hmm. the greater the sorrow, uh, the more profound the beauty of awareness that comes out of it on the other side. So it's this dichotomy. So right. the triggering of our traumatic memory is balanced with the triggering of um, our ancestral wisdom. Mm. And so or collective wisdom. Yes. And so we understood that the importance of our oral traditions was really tied to that understanding of of the passage of information across time. Yeah. And so, you know, science is, is finally admitted that genetic memory is passed from one generation to the next. And so, you know, I can remember even when I was younger where that proclamation by indigenous people was scoffed at and we were ridiculed for that belief. Yeah. And so, you know, understanding that the web of connectivity that we have to one another contains all of the knowledge of our collective experience going back to the beginning of time. You bet. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so some people call that the Akashic Record, and and some people call that the collective consciousness. But what's interesting is that when we're experiencing either traumatic memory, um, the triggering of historical trauma, or whether we're experiencing ancestral wisdom in a positive sense, one of the things that, you know, our stories have done is elicited this emotional response through the ways that the stories have been told that actually causes the mirror neurons in the neocortex to fire. And so when when we have uh, an experience and we have an emotional response to that experience and then we share the story of that experience with another we're transmitting a vibrational frequency that is aligned with that emotional experience absolutely yes and so when the other person receives that vibrational frequency in their body they're experiencing suddenly those same emotions that we're experiencing yes what happens is the mirror neurons in our neocortex fire and our body receives that experience as though we were the one who had experienced it oh wow and so it's the same with our genetic memory Mm-hmm. And so when we think about the real complexity of the teachings that are associated with our oral traditions, it really has to do with, you know, these really profound foundational laws of the universe that are now being supported by unfolding scientific discovery. And so recognizing the correlation between those things has been really eye-opening, I guess, uh, heart-opening, sure. mind-opening for me in so many different ways, because all of these things that I had been raised to believe, all of these deeper teachings that I had been given growing up, 
needed to find a place of alignment with the larger world around me. And ironically, I've found that alignment for the deeper spiritual truths that we have held um, within some of these new scientific discoveries that are unraveling around us right now. And so I think that uh, that's really exciting because it not only confirms, but it creates a framework for those teachings to sit upon. And so in our in our traditional teachings, we also have this teaching of the three fires. Right. And so the three fires are the mind center that exists within the brain, the mind center that exists within the heart, and the mind center that exists within our gut. Yes. And so, you know, again, when we said that, you know, the heart has its own mind, the um, our gut has its own mind that's informing us, those teachings were scoffed at. But now, if you look at the latest scientific discoveries, they're discovering that there are actually neurons within the heart and the gut that inform the brain. Absolutely. And S- some so, people call it the um, vagus nerve. Right. Right. And so we have this connectivity between these three mind centers within our body. And so um, specific ceremonial practices are designed to ignite um, those fires. And so there are some that are designed to ignite the fire within the mind center in our brain so that we can start thinking about and seeing things differently. There are some that are designed to ignite the fire within our heart so that we can begin to experience and feel things differently. And then also we have certain things that trigger the mind center within our gut, which actually guides us um, toward our action out in the world. And whether that action is right or wrong, whether it's harmful to us or positive, you know, we either get a tightening in our gut or the rush of butterflies. Correct. Depending on the direction that we're supposed to be moving in. Yes. And, you know, that's a guidepost to us. And so what our teachings tell us is that when we are able to ignite all three of these fires in ceremonial practice, Uh simultaneously, we create coherence. Okay. And so when that happens... All of those centers are in alignment, they're in coherence with one another, then we open up a whole new channel of information that allows us to access that collective consciousness or Akashic record. Wow. And so the oral tradition teachings that we have, you know, uh, one of the things that's been, I think, unfortunate, but also a blessing is that the deeper indigenous wisdom teachings. Yes have been kept very well protected. Mm -hmm. And it's only been some of these surface level understandings that are almost cliched that have gone out into the world. So you see all kinds of quotes on web of life and, oh, you know, Indian people understood connectivity. But when we start uh, looking at the deeper teachings that have not been shared with the larger world, we start to recognize that those quaint web of life quotes are really tied to a much deeper understanding of quantum entanglement. Sure. When we start thinking about our oral traditions, well, information had to be passed this way because there was no form of writing and it was the only way that people could have this continuity of experience beyond the quaintness of that 
is these really deeper foundational teachings about the three fires and about understanding the complexity of mirror neurons and understanding the complexity of the passing of genetic memory, the enlivening, all of those things that are connected to these deeper teachings has never been really shared with the larger public. Uh, Let me ask you something, Sherry. Is it so that the different indigenous groups around the United States uh, have a similar understanding about what you are saying? Is this also like a collective consciousness, I would say, uh, amongst the indigenous people in this country? Or do you feel that different tribes have different ways of looking at this? Is the the concept of the three fires and working in ceremonies? Well, I think that it's very important to recognize that there is no one cohesive indigenous belief system okay that um every tribe has their own traditions every tribe has their own spiritual practices their own ceremonies their own way of explaining things and so i can only speak from my own perspective you know as uh as uh based on the traditions of my own teachings and Mm -hmm. so when i'm looking at these things i'm looking at them from the perspective of the teachings that i was raised with however i do have to say having worked with indigenous people from all over the americas correct and beyond you know going so far as Uh to maori territory and and other areas of the world um, meeting with folks who are ceremonial keepers from mongolia that many of the deeper underlying teachings are the same. And I think Uh, that that's the same with most all wisdom traditions. Yes. And so the point was that these wisdom traditions have never been able to have a place within the larger framework of the wisdom traditions of the world. So indigenous wisdom traditions have largely been left out of the discussion because it's only been these cliched soundbite images that have been allowed to enter into the public consciousness because there was this collective intent, you know, yeah, to suppress and diminish indigenous people to justify the taking of what was our home, you know, essentially, Um, that you can't harm a people in the ways that indigenous people have been harmed without dehumanizing them in some way so that, you know, your spirit can somehow find some peace with it or your mind can create an illusion of peace with it through the diminishment of the humanization of those peoples. And so I think in the process of that dehumanizing that there has been a a loss of the deeper wisdom traditions, but I think that now is the time for that to come out because of the need for us to understand the deep levels of connectivity that we share and how these are not just physical or energetic or spiritual alone, okay. that there's this larger context that connects us all to one another in ways that really make the continuation of our lives dependent upon one another in in really powerful ways. And so when we're looking at some of the activity that's been going on in the world, I'm sure you cover a lot of it on your show with the destruction of our environment, yes. the um, desertification of our soils, mm-hmm. the contamination of our waters, yes. the genetic modification of our foods, mm-hmm. that all of these things are counter to life. And we've engaged in many of these activities because we've forgotten those basic foundational truths about our 
connection through that, you know, through Kachinuis, through that great seed of life. Yes. And that the matter that we carry within our body was once physically connected to all other matter that makes up life on this planet, and that we can never be disconnected from it energetically or spiritually. Totally. Which true, means yeah. that we can't heal unless we allow the earth to heal herself. Yes. Uh, the earth can't heal um, separate from us, that we are all required to engage this process together just like when i talk about when i did that healing it impacted my mother my grandmother and my daughter yes yes. you know our healing is all tied to one another in these real tangible ways and i think that it's important for the knowledge that indigenous people have in relation to that uh, even though everyone doesn't have this depth of experience because of the ways that they have been traumatized and separated from their inherent truths. Yes. But there's a real revitalization of those things happening right now. And it's it's coming up at a time when the world not only needs that information, but when they're ready to receive it. Wow. And I hope you are enjoying the program today. We're going to take a short break. Stay tuned, please. For more when we come back, because there's a lot more where this came from. But stay tuned, we'll be right back. Jerry, it's, it's absolutely a pleasure to have you on the program. Uh, I, I, love, I love your wording. Uh, there is a depth to you that is, uh, I've, I haven't heard for a long time. Uh, there is a wisdom, an inner wisdom that I can tell that with all the work that you have done and all the the, the study, studying and traveling that you have done and your communication with people and your activism, uh, it is very profound and, and extremely interesting to listen to and inspiring. I say interesting, but it is also very inspiring, definitely for me and I hope for our listeners as well. So thank it's you. really wonderful to be able to have these conversations with you. Before the break, we were talking about oral traditions and yes. the sacred and the science fires. of sound. Yeah, sacred science of sounds. That's right. Mm -hmm. Because every word has a vibration. And, uh, and, and what I always uh, have, have enjoyed with the, the, the Native American tongue is that the, the sounds are so amazing. And they're so different, uh, so uh, there is a rhythm to it that I that you hear. I even feel more than in the English language. Um, mm. Yeah. Do do you are you able to uh, to communicate in the native language? I'm not fluent in my language because there was so much disruption. The story I told about my grandmother being beaten every time she spoke her language. Um, you know, stories like that had a big impact on the transmission of language, but I am every day learning more and more of it. Um, and, uh, you know, the first thing that I learned in the language was how to pray in oh, the language. Interesting. And so all of us have ancestral language that predates the colonial era. And our ancient languages, our traditional ancient languages, really have a resonance within them that connects us to life, that as we've become a more homogenized society, we've moved away from some of those ancient languages in a, in a desire to acclimate or assimilate to the mainstream culture. And in doing so, we've separated ourselves from life in many ways. So when we go back to those ancestral languages, for me, what I've experienced and what I've seen in our community through the revitalization of our language programs is that the young people who are 
learning the language actually have something wake up within them that ah, makes them yeah. more likely to connect with and to defend life on yes. all levels. And so, and the earth, you know, has its own vibrational language. There's um, a resonance within the sound of the birds, within the sounds of the bees, the the droning of the bees as a vibrational frequency that um, offers many people these healing experiences through the medicines that are created through the bees and the bee pollen and, and things of that nature. And so, you know, all of life has a vibrational frequency that comes together to create this, uh, you know, symphony of life. And when we connect with those ancestral languages, we reconnect with that vibrational frequency that ties us back into that symphony of life. And it's instructive and it's right. relational. And so it teaches us how to engage one another in ways that honors the sacredness of all life. So what I think is really interesting is that nearly every faith tradition has some story that tells us that life began with a spoken word. And to me, this signifies the spiritual importance of sound within creation and demonstrates the scientific truth that's been proven that vibration and frequency play a vital role in organizing matter into form. And you so know, yeah, when we ahead. look at, yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I, when you were talking about uh, the young people who speak the language, that they start having this reconnection with the past, uh, it reminded me of the story you're telling in your book about when the white man came to, uh, to the West, that they entered mm-hmm. what they called the new land, their new land, but they, they had these special instructions from the leadership in the East and when they entered the sacred land, your land, the, the native land, they, they really became confused. They had a, a change in energy. They, they, they tapped into the energy of the land and they had conf- conflict. And it was certain individuals within the, the soldiers, within the groups, who were very determined to keep moving forward would be the ones that say, hey, we got to keep moving because a lot of people felt a certain calmness and maybe felt that they were out of place. Uh, is that kind of how you were trying to explain it in the book? They had struggles? Well, they, had, they, I, they struggled. I, I have, yeah, I have a, a, maybe a unique view on what happened with the clash of cultures that was experienced here um, in my territory, uh, Chquabanaki territory. Uh, Chquabanaki is that little tiny um, pulse of light that creeps over the horizon before sunrise. Okay. And so we are the people of that first light. Right. Um, uh, Chquaban is that light and Aki is the people. So we are the people of that first light. And so we are... Um, you know, the the most Eastern tribal communities in North America. I see. Uh-huh. And yes, so yes, yes. we are also the place where first contact was experienced. So we have the longest history of contact with those clash of cultures that has been experienced and that then spread from here to the West um, in this country. And so when I think about that from a historical perspective, there's, you know, a justifiable 
um, explanation for the anger that might rise up from that experience. Mm. When I think about the emotional impacts that have resulted from the historical trauma there and the implications of those impacts that are still reverberating through our communities, I, you know, have this understandable and maybe even justifiable feeling of despair over what we've experienced. But then when I look at it from a really deeper spiritual level, understanding that we are all, um, you know, one body of humanity, that we are connected to this one body of life that came from that great seed of life, Cachinuus, I see that there's a larger unfolding that's taking place. And so um, the first chapter of the book is called Creation Songs, and it talks about this vibrational frequency that we are all attuned with when we come into this life, that we have a creation song Mm -hmm. that is already formed within us and that that creation song is essentially a vibrational map that leads us to our highest purpose and our deepest calling within this lifetime. Yes. And our job is to uncover what that creation song is, learn how to sing that song, and then learn how to merge that song with the larger song of creation. And so there are many cultures that have stories um, that uh, might be somewhat similar to that. I know that there are some African tribes where they go out and they find the song of the child that they're hoping to give birth to, and they learn that song and they sing that song, and it sings that spirit into form through the bodies of their parents. And so when we think about the fact that we all have this creation song, it's really like an inner GPS, right? It's an inner guidance system that is a vibrational um, beacon that leads us to becoming who we were meant to be in this lifetime. And so if we translate that from that microcosmic individual view into this macrocosmic understanding of being one body, traversing through these levels of conscious awareness. When I look at the cultures who came here, who had been traveling through um, this um, wave of colonization, yes, which is a very homogenizing process, uh, that as they moved through those waves of colonization, they stepped further and further away from that song of life. Ah. And that within them, there was that beacon, that alarm going off within um, the frequency of their own vibrational attunement to life that was telling them that they were going off track. And so when there's an animal in the natural world who is sick, they automatically know where to go to find the source of their healing. So they know which plants they're supposed to be eating. They know where uh, to find rest. They know where there are waters that contain healing properties. And so it's, um, you know, that, that process within our physical bodies is the same within our spiritual body. And so, um, you know, I view that separation from the source of life and, often refer to it um, as original sin. You know, this point of demarcation where we separated from the understanding and awareness of our oneness to the belief in otherness, to this belief in this illusion, um, which I see as a sickness of the spirit in separation. You know, this, this belief in separation being an illness of the spirit and that our spirits were 
uh, actually crying out and trying to lead us toward what we needed to heal that illness, that spiritual illness of the belief in separation, the illusion of separation that had been adopted by the colonial set. Okay. And so when... Um, when their spirit started crying out for the source of healing for that spiritual illness within them, which, you know, manifested in beliefs of superiority and entitlement and, uh, you know, all of the othering that's led to all of the violence, um, where that beacon led them was to a place where the umbilical connection to life was still pulsing. Yeah, that was awesome. That's that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah where the indigenous peoples still held that understanding of um, the story that tells us that we are all one living body having simultaneous experiences of ourselves um, in real time. And so uh, when we start to study shamanic healing, when we start to study homeopathic healing, one of the things that we learn is that when somebody who is sick comes in contact with the um, the right medicine for that particular illness, oftentimes there's an amplification of the symptoms of the illness. Correct. And so yes. when, you know, when somebody um, is really sick and they start taking an antibiotic per se, yes. um, oftentimes they'll feel worse before they feel better. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, when somebody is sick and a fever spikes within their body, that's often looked at as a symptom of illness. Uh, when in fact that fevered response is a symptom of healing. And so when I think about it in terms of of that um, understanding, the individuals, the groups that were operating under this illusion of separation who were seeking a source of healing for that sickness within their spirits were drawn to this place so that they could have a reconnection with the awareness of their interrelatedness, interconnectedness, interdependence on uh, one another um, through this one body of life, and that the clash of cultures that erupted between the indigenous populations and the settler populations, um, the violence that occurred there is similar to that shamanic or homeopathic response Ah. that occurs when there is a connection with the source of of healing. And so when we think about this, you know, 500 years history of those types of violent responses, it seems like a very long time. But if we look at the larger arc of development of our conscious awareness as one body, it's really a blip in time. Sure. And so, um, you know, I think that we have gone from um, this place of... um, really panicked denial of mm-hmm. the source of that healing that occurred in that clash of cultures to there's now a settling in the body of humanity where more and more people are willing to accept that in order for us to heal the body of humanity, in order for us to heal this illusion of separation that we've been operating under that has created these false ideas of superiority and entitlement mm. um, and that has resulted in incredible violence between populations, we actually need to regain and remember, you know, reconnect yes. our awareness with our um, deeper interrelatedness as one body. And so uh, to me, that's a story of healing rather than a story of um, continued sickness. 
And it's taken us time to move through that fevered response to the place where there's now starting to be a settled, um, you know, a letting down of the of the inflammation in the body of humanity so that the medicine can seep into the tissues of humanity. And we can start once again, remembering that we are truly all related to one another and um, that there is this uh, symbiotic experience of healing that needs to be allowed to take place in order for us to truly continue to move with the thread and the flow of life uh, as a species um, within the larger scheme of creation. What you're talking about here is you mentioned the word war. And so that is really that, how do I say that? Uh, We see that as part of our own being. We are... um, I, I I have I, I visualize it in my head what I want to say and now I gotta just spit it out and say it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but when you talk about an illness that has to come out, the fact that we have wars is because the illness is coming out because we're not healing. And so the 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 healing when we start healing ourselves and realize that everybody on this planet is directly connected with each other, there is a reason why we're on the planet together at this point. Mm-hmm. We need to collectively work on healing ourselves so that it expands from us and that we there is no there is no reason to have war. So when people talk about peace, it sounds real simple, sign a contract and say we're not going to shoot guns mm-hmm. at each other. But mm-hmm. the real peace starts within your own heart and in your mm-hmm. own mind and in your own gut, like you talk about the three fires. And mm-hmm. once we establish that balance and that harmony, that is what will expand f- away from us. And then we realize that we are cohabiting this world together and that we're responsible for this earth together and that we can live in harmony with each other without, without fighting because that's not necessary. But on the other hand, you say that when somebody is sick, let them express it, let it come out, let the body heal. So is war a means to healing or is it really because we are imbalanced? Well, I think that war is certainly a result of imbalance and I would never encourage anybody to allow for war to continue. Right. Um, we have a, a teaching which I'll I'll make myself a note right here to talk about um, after this explanation, but I think that um, war is a fevered symptom of the infection of the illusion of separation okay. in our hearts and minds. Wow, yeah, yeah, And yeah. so when we have expressions of war, it's a fevered response um, within the body of humanity where um, we are responding to, it's like when you have a, an incredibly high fever, um, you have hallucinations that are attached to it. Yeah, yeah. And so when we think about the illusion of separation and we think about the unfolding of these hallucinations that lead us to believe that difference is danger and sameness equals safety, we have a, a desire to um, eliminate anything that looks different than us, anyone that speaks differently than us, anyone that believes things that are are different from the things that we believe. And so when we're operating under that illusion, we strike out 
um, with violence towards those differences. And I think that that um, is all caused from this true sickness of our hearts and minds that's caused by the spiritual illness, um, which results from the illusion of separation. And so um, one of the things that I think is, is essential in that process is being able to um, do the work, as you say, of healing our own hearts and minds. So we have all kinds of laws on the books. So we had um, laws that abolished slavery. We had um, uh, laws that, uh, you know, prevent us from harming one another in certain ways. There's all of these rules of war that have been established. Um, we have human rights laws, civil yeah. rights laws, yeah. um, you know, uh, crimes against humanity have been defined under uh, these legal frameworks. And so if that was enough to be able to change the way that we engage one another in the world, then war would have been eradicated a long time ago. Sure. And bet. so, um, you know, it's not just a changing in the external structure of the laws and policies that guide us, because what we have been witnessing is a return to some of those more destructive patterns. Um, you know, it just keeps cycling around and around because the deeper work is really changing our hearts and minds by healing ourselves of the illusion of separation, yes. eradicating the illnesses that result from that within our thinking, within our uh, emotional engagement of one another. And so when we start doing that deeper healing work, um, we recognize that um, all of these illusions that we have been operating under um, are really false narratives that have been created by fevered hallucinations mm. within the body of humanity. And so uh, one of the teachings within our warrior philosophy, uh, and interestingly, there is not one word within our whole lineage of warrior teachings that has anything to do with violence or fighting. Huh. Um, it recognizes the sacredness of life. And so uh, one of the words in our warrior philosophy is samognus, and what that means is exerting just enough force to keep the other from harming you or from creating further harm without harming the other. And so you stand in protection of life because you recognize the sacredness of all life. Yes. And in that protective stance, you have no right to harm the other because you can't stand in protection of the sacredness of life and harm the lives of those you oppose. Um, so uh, I think there's a need to stop the flow of harm that is resulting from these illusions of separation that have infected our hearts and minds. So we have to be willing to put our bodies um, in the line of that harm and to stop the flow of that harm because we can't heal until the harm has stopped. Right. So you can't heal from severe child abuse from domestic violence uh, and other forms of abuses. You can't heal from genocide. You can't heal from um, the impacts of slavery and indentured servitude until the harms that are flowing towards you as a result of those activities has stopped. Right. So, you know, that reconciliation process begins with truth um, and in that truth telling, there's a stopping of the flow of harm that is being aimed. And then you can begin to engage the real healing process that unfolds on the other side of that. Well, I, I want to I, I hear more about this because this is fascinating, Sherry. I thank you so much for explaining that. 
And there is more I want to ask you indeed about that whole warrior concept. But we have to take another break, folks. We're done two hours, one hour left. We'll be right back. We ended up talking about the warriors. And one thing that has confused me many times, oh no, I shouldn't say that many times. Uh, a few, about three or four weeks ago, I had a guest on who wrote a book about uh, Crazy Horse, the, the Lakota mm -hmm. chief. And so much depth, uh, talking about the last 14 months of his life after the Battle of Little Bighorn until his death in 1877. But that is, I, I, when I see how often the Lakota or the Sioux would attack the crow and then kill, kill children, kill mothers, uh, kill the elderly, uh, what I just get confused when I know, when I hear the wisdom that somebody like Crazy Horse is, is sharing with others, how he talks about life and nature and protecting the land and protecting the traditions and the history, but then at the same time, they just go and kill their own. That's what I look at. They kill their own. And I, that is something I don't understand that that goes together and it goes opposite of what everything that you're saying, not everything, uh, it goes opposite to some of the things that you are explaining about the warrior, to have that defensive stance and to do no harm to the mm -hmm. opponent. Yeah, I think that it's uh, it's important. There's a section in the book called Teachers and Teachings yes. that talks about understanding that, uh, as they said in the movie The Matrix, there's a difference, Neo, between knowing the path and walking the path. Yes. And so, um, you know, you can carry wisdom. I had this really wonderful conversation with my son yesterday where he was saying, you know, that knowledge is power. And I said, knowledge is powerless unless you actually implement it into your life yeah. and utilize it yeah. in some way that creates a beneficial outcome. And so um, one of the things that we faced here in the East are um, relatives and our nearest neighbor are the Haudenosaunee people from the Iroquois Confederacy. And everyone that knows the history knows that the Mohawk were really vicious, um, a very vicious warring tribe. In fact, the confederacies were formed in this territory to protect against the warring of the Mohawks, who were very vicious. Mm. And so um, the Guyana Shagoa teachings from the Iroquois confederacy, from the Haudenosaunee, are about... Um, Hiawatha and the peacekeeper and bringing peace to the five nations of the Haudenosaunee. And we have uh, stories within our own tradition about the peace accord that was developed between the Haudenosaunee and the Chquabanaki, uh, Wabanaki tribes. Yeah. And, um, you know, we believe that the East is the direction of creation. And so when we think about the unfolding of um, new ways of thinking, this this new thought that comes in. Oftentimes the um, thought process in the West follows the example of the East. And so if we look right. at Eastern traditions from the Far East, uh, Buddhism and, and some of those um, philosophies that have had such a powerful influence on the West, yes. um, that corresponds to some of the teachings we have that the wisdom 
um, of new um, ways of being and new understandings actually arise in the East and and travel to the West. And so um, we certainly had to go through our own process as Indigenous people to learn how to translate what we knew into a tangible walk okay. upon the earth. And so um, the wisdom of those teachings was held, um, but not always engaged in, you know, uh, it's like uh, you learn something and you learn it theoretically and the distance between traveling from your head to your heart is oftentimes the longest distance that exists. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a very difficult thing. But when that teaching actually sinks into your heart space, that's when we're talking about the difference between um, having laws and actually having a change of heart and mind that leads us to live in a way that is self-protective um, of all life, uh, self-awareness um, of our interrelatedness, uh, seeing the value and the sacredness of every life. And so we as tribal people, we're not immune from having to learn those same lessons. Yes. Um, and so there was, um, you know, peace accords that were developed between our peoples um, long before there was contact with the settler set. Um, but there are also a number of wars that um, were still raging, you know, within and amongst um, Indian people on this continent. And so, uh, you know, we're not uh, separate from the unfolding of the conscious evolution of this one body of humanity. And so um, we were still learning how to um, engage those teachings into a tangible walk, but right. the teachings were still being held. Yes, yes, yes. And so I, I think that that's really important for people to know because one of the things that has happened to our society is we live under the illusion of all of these binaries. And so um, it's it's black or it's white. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one or the other. You can't possess this wisdom and then do something counter to it. I mean, and that's why so many of our great spiritual teachers have fallen from grace ah. um, because they carry these profound teachings, but then they do something that's not perfectly in alignment with it right. or perfectly in alignment with someone else's view of it. And then they discount the entire teaching. Yes. And so it, it's important for us as we, um, you know, traverse the miles of our own spiritual journey to recognize that we are following the teachings and not individual teachers. Hmm. And so when we follow the evolution of those teachings, rather than getting hung up on individual teachers, um, then we're much more likely to actually continue to evolve our consciousness. Yes. Uh, when we get hung up on individual teachers and we fail to see the humanity of those who are carrying specific teachings, yes. we actually tend to just throw out, because it has to be black and white for us, the entire set of teachings that can benefit us so greatly. And so, you know, that's part of the process that we're all immersed in as we're growing and changing in the middle of it it's hard to recognize that because you do want to follow the person because th that person says everything correctly just everything mm -hmm. the way you want to hear it and that right. is indeed the teaching but when you see the person mm -hmm. handling their own affairs it's not always congruent with the with what the teaching was was speaking about and so we have this with this feeling that that's many times where these teachers and idols are surrounded by their own personal staff that protects them from 
from uh, mistakes or protects them from people approaching, etc. And it, it, it creates also, uh, in my opinion, an illusion about mm -hmm. what is right and what is not right. Right. I mean, when I do workshops, when I have um, healing events, um, very, very, um, very clear that I am a flawed human being, uh, that I am a spiritual being living in the body of a flawed human being, mm -hmm. trying to recognize my own greatness, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, and that's, uh, and that's uh, a mental thing. And that's a physical thing. It's a practical thing. And it's a theoretical thing. Yeah. And so, um, you know, as we're trying to recognize the greatness of our spiritual truth, um, we are often finding the opposite of that within our human experience, and that's part of the learning process. I was just going to say that's part of the growth. Mm -hmm. We have to recognize that in order to grow. We are right. we are never we're never reaching that end. That's why we live. This is part of being in this schoolroom of Earth. We have to mm -hmm. become better by by getting challenged. And I feel indeed that when people have an opportunity to have an, 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 another job, let's call it a better job or a higher rank, it doesn't mean that you are per se better. I just feel you have been given an opportunity that has more responsibilities. And at, mm -hmm. at the same time, I think when you get, a you get in a position where you feel more than somebody else, really it is your responsibility to bring other people up with you. It is we are responsible for many, many souls who we are connected with directly and, mm -hmm. and bring them up to a new level for them as we have been pulled up by others to a new level. Yeah. And then if we look at the, um, the alignment, you know, we live in this cause and effect universe. So if we look at the alignment of what we view as elevate, elevating responsibilities connected to elevated position within whatever realm you're operating in, yes. the consequences for failure um, also are amplified. Oh, and yes. so, um, you know, somebody who's making these kinds of mistakes in their everyday life, who is not a public figure, yes, um, doesn't have the same type of um, incredible public backlash and scorn that is received by someone who makes those kinds of mistakes, who is a public figure. Yes. And so in addition to the amplification of responsibility for the souls that you carry, there's also an amplification of the consequences for falling out of step with your path. And so, um, you know, I have compassion for those individuals whose lives are seemingly destroyed from one careless thing that they might have done, yes. uh, one human experience that they might have had, whereas somebody who is not in the public eye could have made that same mistake, learned from it, moved on, and not have it destroy every aspect of their life because um, they don't have that same level of consequence that comes with those who, who are, are yes. moving into um, a larger realm of influence. And yes. so, um, you know, we need to have compassionate awareness of the roles that we're all playing and be able to shift back and forth between these microcosmic and macrocosmic views mm. of the experiences that we're having as individual and collective um, bodies. Mm. You know, when we talk about that, the consequences are harsher when you're in a certain position. I, um, we've, been, we've been, I think, shocked by the amount of suicides that have taken place lately. Uh, and again, mm -hmm. there are suicides happening all the time. But all of right. a sudden, we see more well-known people who we, some in, in the human mind, you would say they have it all. You know, why would they commit suicide? 
but it's happening. How how do you view that? What kind of messages do you receive when you read or hear about uh, well-known people uh, who have it all uh, committing suicide? Well, I mean, I can't separate that from my personal experience. Um, a year and a half ago, one of my nephews, who was very handsome um, by all societal standards, very successful, very well-loved, popular um, uh, young man who had joined the Marine Corps and seemed to have the adoration of you know his entire community of people yeah. in every um, community that he was engaged in committed suicide. Huh. And so what that tells us is a couple of things. Um, one, um, clearly our social standards of what having it all means are flawed. Yes. And um, the things that we need fundamentally for our own human well-being are missing. Yes. You know, connection, belong, sense of belonging and purpose um, on a much deeper level. Um, also, the pressure to remain at the top um, by those who have found themselves there is, uh, is so immense that many people are crushed by it. Yes. Um, because there are so many people that become dependent upon their continued success to manage their own success in life. Huh. Um, and also, we are becoming connected in ways that we have never been connected before in this iteration of humanity, mm. um, where we have access on a daily basis to the trauma mm -hmm. and the devastation and the inhumanity that is being experienced by populations around the globe. And so um, all of those triggers to our uh, genetic wounds that we carry, that historical trauma, are being triggered at a much more rapid rate than ever before for anyone that has any type of sensitivity uh, or empathy towards the plight of others, the pain of that that they experience within their own bodies is overwhelming. And I so see. you have this multitude of factors coming together yeah. to create this kind of perfect storm. I mean, over the past, I think it's 10 years, suicide yeah. rates have increased by 30%. Yeah, and so you can couple that with our access to information and our ability to be able to witness in real time the suffering of the entire planet. Our bodies weren't designed to be able to manage that kind of trauma on a daily basis. Right. And so physi physiologically, we're not um, evolved to the point where we can manage that kind of trauma and stress. Spiritually, we may have the capacity for that. And spiritually, we can work to um, actually prepare ourselves and condition ourselves um, to see it from a different perspective, you know, to uh, one of my most powerful prayers is I am ready and willing to see this differently. Okay. And so we have, you know, the ability to shift our way of seeing it, to shift the finality and um, the closed, um, I guess, sense of, um, of, um, awareness around those things to a much larger view. Okay. And so um, because our physiological bodies, our human bodies, have not um, been able to evolve within our primitive brain, our limbic system, um, the ability to be able to manage a hundred thousand 
plus messages per day of devastation and trauma and heartache and suffering. Yes. Um, our physiology, our chemistry, uh, you know, the biology of our human bodies um, is oftentimes overwhelmed by the influx of the chemicals that are released within our bodies when we're witnessing those things. Right. And so, you know, there's so much that's going on there. There's no one thing that you can blame. Um, but the key to alleviating that type of suffering is, first of all, awareness of how it's registering within our bodies, um, understanding our connectivity to the suffering of others, understanding the limitations of our own physiology, and then learning how to reconnect ourselves to that source of life, oh. to the core values that are contained within the deepest parts of our being. Yes. And so, um, you know, that when I look at the rise in suicides within the population, those are the things that I see. And, um, you know, uh, Native American populations in the United States have had consistently suicide rates that are four times higher than the national population wow. because of that type of despair yes, yes, um, yes. and historical trauma and the implications of that unfolding within our communities. Huh. Wow, that is intense. That's intense. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, Boy, and I, and I thought it was just a lack of vitamin D. No, <laughs> well, of course that uh, there are different things that can help. But uh, oh, what a what a story about well, your Well, I think that that's a part of it because we have to be able to understand our own physiology. Yes. And so when we look at things like vitamin D and certain B vitamins in their capacity to be able to elevate are, uh, you know, dopamine, dopamine and serotonin levels, yes. um, that, that, that's essential, you know, that's yes. part of the process of it balancing is. the impacts on our physiology of the trauma that we're experiencing energetically and spiritually. Yeah. I, I totally hear you. It's a, you know, I, I'm totally with you hear what you say, Sherry, and, and I, I totally feel that I'm tuning into what you're saying in another show. I would indeed talk about the over-medication. I would talk about the uh, the, the misunderstand, the misinterpretation of, of certain blood work, um, about thyroid, for example, hormonal imbalances of women, vitamin D deficiency. There is indeed a combination of things that uh, that play a role. And I, uh, but you know, this is a whole different explanation that I can totally tune into and and can uh, can understand. So I really appreciate yeah. the way you explain it. Thank you. Please keep listening till eleven o'clock. We will be right back. Very much appreciate your wisdom, Sherry. Thanks so much for being with me today. It's been a real pleasure to spend this time with you, Jacobus, so thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome. I, uh, we do have a caller who would like to ask a question or share a comment. Uh, good morning, caller. What's your name? How can we help you, please? Good morning, Jacobus. This is Steve. Steve, good morning to you. Uh, yes. Do you know that the song that you were just playing there, do you know where the origin of that was? Uh, I do not, Steve. It was written by a captain of a slave ship. Okay. Mm -hmm. And they got in this terrible storm, and they didn't know whether they were going to survive or not. He got down on his knees and prayed to God, and that he would quit doing what he was doing if they could survive. Wow. And right after that, the storm subsided, and so he wrote that song. Wow, Steve, I didn't know that. 
Anyway, uh, we were talking about people who committed suicide and stuff like that. Our government did a study in the 1920s to study minerals in our food. Uh-huh. And they divided, they took 100 people and they divided them in half, and it ran for a year. The first six months, they gave half the people food with minerals in it and half the other half with food with no minerals in it. Well, before the six months is up, the people who are not getting the minerals in their food, they're trying to commit suicide, they're losing their mind. And so then when the six months came up, they switched. And they didn't even finish the, the rest of the six months out. But okay. before the people who had had not been getting the minerals trying to commit suicide, yes. now they get well. The ones who now aren't getting any minerals in their food, yeah. they're trying to commit suicide wow. and, and do mm-hmm. that. It was obvious there is a group of people I believe the Earth was built for 500 million people, and they want to get it down to less than a billion, which means six out of seven got to go. Yeah. Purposely, I believe, what they're doing is giving us food with no minerals. But we're all spiritual beings having a human experience. We're supposed to know these things, mm. and, and, of course, we, we have to do it through shows like yours or, or books like she's written. Yeah. To know these things that to take care of our body, because it is the temple of God. Yes. And to take care of it. Mm-hmm. And when we don't give our body the food with the minerals and the nutrition that it needs, yes, we're they're doing the same things what she was talking about, yeah. is trying to commit suicide if we don't take care of yeah. ourselves. Anyway, that was my one comment. Thanks, Steve. I appreciate yeah. it. I'll let, let Sherry talk about it. I appreciate your call. All the best. Happy Father's Day. Yeah, All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Right, thank you. Bye. Go ahead, Sherry. Sherry? Oop. Did I lose you? Is, oh. is Steve oh, you still are. on the line? No, no, no. He hung up. Okay. Um, well, I, I think that, you know, what he's talking about is, is um, you know, just what we were talking about earlier in that We've become so separated from the sources of our survival. And so as we've had this rising um, uh, technology that has given us access to a larger part of the world, we've also had this distancing from the sources of our survival and our connection to the earth. And it it really, um, the story he told really drives home the fact that our awareness of the requirements of our lives is tied to a living, healthy earth. Yes. And so, um, you know, and that provides us with all of the guidance that we need in order to live whole lives. And and I also just wanted to, um, you know, commend him on recognizing that version of Amazing Grace that was written by John Newton. And, um, you know, John Newton had one of those experiences that we're talking about where his Mm. heart and his mind were completely shifted from a spiritual experience that he had. And he was a slave trader. He ran one of these big slave trading ships. And um, after that experience, uh, when he wrote Amazing Grace in that ship, um, he actually spent the rest of his life working for the abolition of slavery. And so, you know, all of these themes that uh, seemingly are disconnected, we see how they all tie together. And when we start paying attention to what's going on in the world, we recognize that we are constantly being guided 
toward awareness of these higher truths. Mm -hmm. And so whether it be the studies that are done to prove that um, our bodies are reliant upon for our well-being, the minerals that come from the earth, because we are made up of those same foundational yes. elements. Yes, you are. And are. that we are dependent on um, on our connection to the earth in real tangible ways um, for our own sense of well-being. And yes. so, you know, all those things are, are deeply connected. And so I want to thank him for calling in and, and pointing out those two things that actually really illustrate everything that we've been talking about today. Mm, fantastic. Good morning, caller. Thanks for holding. What's your name? How can we help you, please? War. Warren? Uh, war, W-A-R. Oh. Uh, <laughs> probably uh, heard the Christian saying, he that lives by the sword shall die by the sword, or the Jewish one, they have sown the wind and shall reap the whirlwind. Uh. Now, I'm not afraid to speak the unspeakable and say that the U.S. has plenty of blood on its hands and the war may uh, be setting us up for tough times or or maybe it'll be forgiven and all that. Do yeah. you have any ideas how the U.S. can shake off the shackles of war and the causing of this karma that causes these sensitive souls to go into their traumas? All right. Well, thanks, Daniel. Appreciate yeah. it. Okay, bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. All right. I think that's that's a really good segue to something that we had wanted to talk about on the show, which is the healing the wounds of Turtle Island yes. gathering. Mm -hmm. We have a series of prophecies that we believe are in play right now. Um, one of those is the Crazy Horse prophecy. Yes. There is the Seventh Fire prophecy of the Nishinaabe the seventh generation prophecy of the Mohawk, the rainbow warrior prophecy of the Hopi. And we have a prophecy about the reopening of the Eastern door, ah. which is a spiritual gateway um, in our territory. And so as we talked about earlier, the East is the direction of creation. And um, the East is the point of first contact between the settler populations and the indigenous populations of this land. And so when we look at um, moving beyond the physical to the spiritual and the energetic, there was an original agreement that was written upon this land. And um, as, as the caller just said, that original agreement was written in blood. I see. And so the vibrational frequency of that original agreement has resonated throughout the land and has guided the actions of this growing nation. And so, you know, we are one of the most violent places on earth. Yes. And so if we look at the, the violence that erupts within this country, uh, if we look at the um, implications of how that's tied to that original agreement, um, it's understandable how this country has developed um, out of a basis of genocide and slavery to a place that has um, erupted in this um, ever-evolving state of violence. And so one of the most profound um, teachings that I received around that was uh, I went to work um, for a law firm in Colorado in the Boulder area. And from the moment I got there, I felt this real kind of like homicidal danger. Yes. around me. Um, there was this real sense of homicidal violence that I um, experienced as soon as I moved into that place. I got to know all of my neighbors. I yeah. tried to figure out where is this, where is the energy of this coming from? 
And so I had been there for about a month and I um, was invited to have dinner with a, a couple who lived in the area who were both native people. And one of the things that I asked him about, what is the history of this place? Um, because I've been experiencing this feeling that I can't really put my finger on. And so they told me that that location was one of the locations of the most recent massacres in U.S. history of indigenous peoples. And so I, you know, I learned about that. And it was, you know, less than 100 years ago, there was this incredible massacre that occurred in that valley. And uh, then it occurred to me that Columbine, Aurora and Littleton were all within 20 miles of the site of that massacre. And so the resonance of violence that exists within the land that is passed on to the people who are living in the vibration of that feeling of violence is a very real thing that we do need to take steps to heal. Um, our prophecy about the reopening of the Eastern Door is that the Eastern Door is um, the direction of creation. It's the place where new beginnings, new life emerges. Yes. And so the ceremony that we're doing through Healing the Wounds of Turtle Island, which you can find more information about on my website, um, is a gathering of people from all corners of the world coming together on the land where first contract contact occurred, where that contract was written in blood, and making a commitment to heal our relationships with one another and with the rest of creation so that we can write a new spiritual contract with one another that will usher in a new way of being in relationship to one another. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that work is going on. That's what we're engaged in. Um, here through Healing the Wounds of Turtle Island. It's a 21-year ceremony wow. that is beginning in the huh. East, and it'll travel to all of the um, spiritual directions. And then on the 21st year, it'll come back here for a closing of the ceremony. And so everybody's invited to participate in that process. And uh, there has been really powerful things that have been happening in the lives of the participants who have come from all different corners of the world and in the communities that they are a part of, that they're bringing that healing back to their communities and creating changes within their communities. Yeah. Because we have to be able to address this not only physically, but spiritually and energetically in understanding our connectivity to all of these foundational properties of life and being able to work within within the realm of um, the shamanic. Mm. And so when mm. we think about shamanic healing, shamanic healing is being able to um, step into the place of active creation to reorganize the vibration and frequency that exists there to shift the form of the matter that is connected to whatever it is we're trying to heal, whether it be, you know, personal relationships or illness or what have you. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about that, uh, and then we think about the laws of creation. We think about some of these laws of physics. Um, for instance, uh, Sir Isaac Newton's idea that um, you know a body in motion will stay in motion until it meets with an equal or greater force. The laws of motion. That that's really shamanic principle. That huh. there's an energetic patterning that has set a body in motion in yeah. in in relation to form. And that the shamanic process is about being that equal or greater force that that body that has been set into motion comes up against and being able to reorganize it and change it and set it off in a new trajectory. I see. And so that calls all of us forward at this point in time to actually engage that shamanic process 
because the ideology of the patriarchy and um, the settler ideology of colonization is a body that has been set in motion. And we see the destruction that has been caused by the motion of that body. So we need to step in and become the equal or greater force that that body is coming up against. We need to be able to reorganize the vibration and frequency of those ideologies that have been driving the destruction of our societies. Mm. And we need to move it into a different direction. And so we do that by recognizing our ability to become active co-creators of the reality that we exist within and that we're creating into the future. Right. Wow. That is beautifully said. Uh, Thank you so much, Sherry. I was going to ask you, when Daniel called about the war... One thing that I was thinking about, we have to also keep in mind that many of the people who were not living in the United States or in in America, so to say, came from areas where they were trying to escape war because they Mm -hmm. were not free. They they came here to find freedom and that the, the war that had raged through Europe for so many centuries was ingrained in their past, in their uh, history. And because of that, I, I, I wonder if when they came, when they started moving west and saw all this unbelievable land and wanted to settle down and ended up being confronted by the natives, that that war took over and that's why so much fighting was going on. Um, the the uh, that is of that's obviously not the native uh, history, but the natives also came from somewhere in Asia or Russia, or uh, w- as we know it today, they were escaping something ten ten thousand years or plus more ago uh, to come and find freedom in this land as well. Well, I guess that um, there are different ideas about that. My grandfather okay. actually wrote a, a book on that, uh, kind of debunking that land bridge theory with the Barron Strait, but we'll, that's oh. a whole other show. Okay. And well. so um, <laughs> we have evidence of being present on this land up to 15,000 years ago. Wow. And so um, one of the things that I think is, is important to recognize is that we all have responsibility for the state of the world today. Yes. Um, But we have to be careful about assigning blame. Um, We have 17 plus centuries of indoctrination through every aspect of our being. It's part of our social contracts, you know, in common agreements. It's been woven into these um, oftentimes really skewed narratives that become the historical doctrine. It has been um, incorporated into a lot of the religious doctrine and dogma. And so these ideologies associated with separation um, and um, and uh, superiority and entitlement of an individual view is ingrained into the minds and uh, has been adopted into the hearts because, you know, the more often you repeat something, um, the more likely it is to become a belief. And so when you have this indoctrination um, through this colonial set of uh, millennia of 
beliefs that there is one way to be that is the correct way to be, regardless of where you're seated in the world and what your belief system is, you believe in the superiority of your way of being. Mm. And so that's what's led to the large scale colonization and this whole settler ideology. Um, And it's influences the way even that we engage our activism and our peace work in the world, where we have become activists of conquest. We just want to unseat those who disagree with us and put the people who agree with us in power. Yes. And and so even in the work that we're doing for peace, even in um, our activism for unity and social justice, um, we take on these conquest ideologies and incorporate conquest into the activism and to the work that we're doing. And so the the way for us to address that first is to become aware of how we've been indoctrinated, mm. to look at every place where we believe that there is some type of uh, superiority, where there is some type of belief in one way being right. Yes. Because again, if we go back to our greatest teacher, which is the natural world, we yes. see that the world is comprised of rich biodiversity. And that that biodiversity is essential for a healthy, functioning world. It's the same with our societies. We need the rich diversity within our societies to give balance and meaning to the entire structure of our world. And so this process of homogenizing, you know, it's kind of like monocrop agriculture. It's very, monocrop agriculture is very destructive. It contaminates our water sources with the need for increased pesticides. It creates a desertification of our soils. It strips the foods of their essential nutrients and mineral base. And so when we think about colonization in that way, um, it does the same thing to our societies. And it actually is a threat to the life of humanity. It's a threat to our species, and it's been a threat to other life forms. Um, And so we need to reconnect with our awareness um, about the um, guidance that's being provided to us by the natural world about how to be whole, healthy, and fully functioning, which is to have rich diversity within our societies and to preserve that, to overcome our differences and our ideas of superiority and separation, and then accept and integrate all of that diversity into the whole so that we can roll forward together Hmm. rather than because oneness and sameness are not equal. And I think that's really important for people to know oneness and sameness are not equal, that it takes all of us and all of our diversity in order for us to be able to create the type of world that we are really hoping to achieve. Wow. Very good. Very good. I, I, Sherry, I want to thank you so much for your tremendous wisdom, your calmness, your insights, your passion, and, and, and everything that you're doing uh, to help us all as human beings, and especially as you has written, have written this book, Sacred Instructions. And I, I hope, folks, that you go find her information at her website, sacredinstructions.life. I hope to see you again next week, Saturday. And Sherry, thank you so much and all the best to you. Thank you. All right. Folks, stay tuned. Have a good weekend. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye.